in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, somebody says, ooh, there's that word predestination, and that's another frightful word. Friend, that's one of the most wonderful words we have in the Scripture. This is important, is it not? This is a glorious section. And by the way, this is something that we don't hear much about today, do we? If I wasn't going through the Bible, I would have avoided this. I would have taken something else. I'd have talked about the comfort that there is for the saints, because that seems to be the big theme today of most even fundamental preachers. We're all talking about comfort. This is strong medicine. Some folk won't be able to take the medicine. I'm very sorry, but if you take it, it'll do you good. And we need something pretty strong today in this flabby age in which we live. We need to know that we've been chosen in Him. And today to stand for God, it'll make all the difference in the world, in your life. We're treading on the mountaintops in the epistle to the Ephesians. We're way back yonder in eternity past when God planned the church. I wasn't back there to give him any suggestions or tell him how I wanted it done, but he's telling me how he did it. And I don't want to be unlovely, but I want to say this. He says to me, you either take it or leave it. This is the way I did it. Maybe you don't like it, but this is the way I did it, and I'm the one that's running this universe, you see. God hasn't turned that over to any political party yet. Thank God for that. And he hasn't turned it over to any individual. And we can thank the Lord for that. He certainly hasn't turned it over to me. And I tell you, all of us can shout a hearty amen to that and thank him that he didn't do it that way. Now, we mentioned that there are three things that he has done for us here in this matter of planning the church. First of all, we've seen that he chose us. And that was a pretty hard pill, I think, to take for all of us to swallow. I'm sure that we found that a little difficult. The Father chose us in Christ, and the Father predestinated us to the place of a sonship. We are going to see that today. And then the Father made us accepted in the Beloved. Those are the three things that he did in planning the church. Now, I think we ought to make this very clear also, that men are not lost because they are not elected. They are lost because they are sinners. And that's the way they want it. And they've chosen it that way. Now, the free will of man is never violated because of the election of God. A lost man makes his own choice. And Augustine made that very clear, that if there wasn't free will to accept the grace of God, how could God save the world? And if there be not free will in man, how can the world by God be judged? Therefore, we find that God is the one that did the choosing. Now, I want to make a very strong statement today, and I'm back in Romans. You remember we referred to Romans 9. Paul says that there's no unrighteousness with God, and he says, if you really think there is, 
then you better change your thinking because is there unrighteousness with God? And the answer is, God forbid. And he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Now, let me make this very clear. And this needs to be made today. Because I get the impression in many of these evangelistic campaigns today that people are asked to come forward, and that even coming forward is doing something, you see. May I say to you that God says that he's not saving you because you came forward. He's not saving you because you're a nice little boy or a nice little girl. He's not saving you because of the fact that you joined the church. He's not saving you because you have even an inclination to turn to him. God says it's because he extends mercy. And he had to say it even to Moses. You see, Moses could go to the Lord and say, Look, I'm Moses. You remember me? I'm leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. I'm something on the stick. I'm really up there at the top. You'd have a little problem getting along without me, I can assure you. Therefore, I want you to hear my prayer. Oh, Moses never prayed like that. You read his prayers. And God said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll compassion on whom I'll have compassion. What did he mean? He says, So then it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now, will you listen to me very carefully at this particular point? He says, Moses, I'm going to hear you prayer, and I'm going to answer it. Not because you're Moses, because it's not to him that will it, and it's not to him that run it, but it's God that showeth mercy. My friend, I'm going to be in heaven someday, and I'm not going to be there because Vernon McGee's a nice little boy. He's not. You just don't know me like I know myself. If you did... You'd tune your radio out, but wait a minute, don't tune it out. Because if I knew you like you know yourself, well, I wouldn't speak to you. <laughs> so let's stay together, will you? Because we're both in the same boat, by the way. We're all lost sinners. And the reason that I'm going to be in heaven is not because I became a preacher. It's not because I joined the church. It was not because I was and talk about baptized, I have been immersed and I have been sprinkled. My wife, she belonged to a Southern Baptist church, and she's always prided herself in being immersed. And I said, it's sure going to be funny if we get to heaven and find out that the Lord was really taking sprinkling after all, and that might leave you out, but I'm going to make it because I got both. Well, that's ridiculous. Why? Because, my friend, it's not those things at all that are going to put you in heaven. The reason I'm going to be in heaven is because of the mercy of God. I'm a lost sinner. And until you and I are willing to come to God as a nobody and then let him make us a somebody, you and I will never get saved. Your best resolutions must totally be waived. Your highest ambitions be crossed. You need never think you'll ever be saved. Now, first, you'll learn you're lost. You're lost, friend. That's your condition. And God is prepared to extend mercy to you. 
And you've got a free will. And don't tell me that you've got intellectual problems, hurdles to get over. You don't have any. The problem with you and the problem with me was not that we had trouble with Jonah or we had trouble with Noah and the ark. Our problem today is that the Bible condemns the sin in our lives. And that's the problem. Because of the fact when the heart is willing to turn to God, God will save you. Now, that is something that's, I know, rather strong, but maybe somebody today needs to say it like this. And he's done this in order that he might bring you and me into heaven someday. When we get there, we're going to find out he did it. Now we come to this next thing God did for us, and I have to go back in verse 4 and lift out that little expression, that phrase, in love. That doesn't belong really with the election. It belongs here with predestination. In love, having predestinated. Now somebody's going to say, well, I never knew you could get predestination and love even in the same county, let alone in the same verse. But here they are. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, this word predestinate is a word that's been frightful to a great many people. And predestination is a word that comes from proorisis, a Greek word, and it means to define, to mark out, set apart. It means to horizon. You go out, especially if you're in flat country, and look around, you see you are in a certain area, and you can only see to the horizon. That's the word. You are horizoned. You are put in that area. Now, may I say that predestination is never used in reference to unsaved people. God never predestinated anybody to be lost. If you are lost, it's because you've rejected God's remedy. Here is the thing. Here's a man lying on a bed dying. The doctor has come in and prescribed to him and says, here's a medicine. If you take it, it'll heal you. The man looks at the doctor in amazement and says, I don't believe you. And he leaves that glass of medicine there by his desk. He could reach out and take it, and he won't take it. Now the man dies, and the doctor's report says he dies of a certain disease. That's accurate. But... May I say to you, there was a remedy there, and he actually died because he didn't take the remedy, don't you think? May I say to you that today God has provided the remedy. Now, God has never predestinated anybody to be lost. That is something that you will have to determine yourself. That's where your free will comes in. Now, predestination has to do with the saved. And all it really means is that when God starts out with a hundred sheep, he's going to come through with a hundred sheep. That's all in the world it means. Again, if you go back to the epistle to the Romans, you find that wonderful verse that's quoted so often in verse 28 in the 8th chapter. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God 
And as Dr. Tari used to say, that's a wonderful verse for a tired heart to pillow its head on. Is that verse there? And it is. To them that are called according to his purpose. Now, this that follows goes with it. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate. You see, we talk now about saved people. He called, and whom he called, and he also justified. Whom he justified, then he also glorified. In other words, when God starts out with a hundred sheep, he'll come through with a hundred sheep. Now, that's a good percentage, because I was told by one of the sheep growers, raisers, out in San Angelo, Texas, years ago, that very frankly, he said that they would appreciate getting 65%. He said, we can make money if we get 65% of the sheep we start out with, if we can get them to market. Well, may I say to you, what would it hurt if one little old sheep got lost? Well, I'll tell you what the Lord Jesus said about that. He said a man had a hundred sheep. One little old sheep got out and got a loss. Most of us do that even after we get saved. Now, we don't lose our salvation, but we sure get out of fellowship with him. We get way out yonder. And some people think they actually lose their salvation. But the little old sheep is still a sheep, and he's way out yonder, and he's lost. And all we like sheep have gone astray. That's our propensity. That's our tendency. That's the direction we go. We don't go toward God. We go from him, and we get out yonder, away from him. And what does the shepherd do? Well, he went out to look for that little sheep. I'm confident that that man who raises sheep in San Angelo, Texas, I don't believe he'd go out on a cold, blustery, stormy night to get one little old sheep. I think he'd say, let him go. Thank God we got a shepherd that never says that. He said, I started out with a hundred sheep. I'm going to come through with a hundred sheep. And it's just as simple as this. He starts out with a hundred sheep. Now, the day comes when he's counting them in yonder in heaven, way out yonder, somewhere in the future. And he starts out one, two, three, four, five, ninety-six, ninety-seven, ninety-eight, ninety-nine, 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 ninety-nine. What in the world happened to Vernon McGee? Well, we just lost one, so I think we let it go at that. A lot of folk didn't think Vernon McGee is going to make it anyway. And thank God he won't do it that way. If I'm not there, my friend, when he counts them in, he's going to go look for me, and he's going to bring me in. That's what predestination means. I don't know about you. I love the word. He's guaranteed. That's his guarantee. He says, I've lost none of those that were given to me. And I love it that way. And if sheep are safe, it's not because they're smart little sheep, because they're stupid little fellas. If they're safe, it's because they got a wonderful shepherd. That's the glorious, wonderful thing about it. Now, that's the second thing that he does for us. But he's predestinated us to the adoption of sons. I'm not going into that because I have dealt with that in Galatians. Adoption means he's brought us into the place of a full-grown son. And that means two very important things. It means, first of all, we've been regenerated 
by the Holy Spirit, that the child of God has been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And this is the new relationship the Lord Jesus talked about to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, it means something else. Adoption does. It means a position and a privilege. It means that we have been saved and not only born into the family of God as a babe in Christ, but we've been given the position of an adult son. And it means now that we are in the position that we can understand the Father. Now, it's wonderful. I've got a heavenly Father today, and I've been a babe a long time. But, you know, he told me that he's put me in now a position where I can understand him. Today we can understand. And how? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. And all of this has been through Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And all of this, friends, is for the glory of God. For now, he ends all of this each time by singing this glorious doxology, this wonderful psalm of praise. Verse 6, "...to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he made us accepted in the beloved." Now, all of this is done on the basis of grace. And I'm going to talk about grace when we get to the second chapter. But it's on the basis of grace, and the end is the glory of God. Inception is grace. Conception is adoption. Reception is for His glory. And the beloved refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what the Lord Jesus said? He said, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me from the foundation of the world. God sees the believer in Christ, and he accepts the believer just as he receives his own son. That's wonderful. That's the only basis I'll be able to be in heaven. I can't stand there on the merit of Vernon McGee. I can only accept it in the Beloved. And again, the Lord Jesus said in John 17, 23, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. God loves the believer just as he loves Christ, because the believer is in Christ. How wonderful. This is the threefold work performed hereby the Father God, the Father chose us in Christ. The Father predestinated us to the place of sonship. The Father has made us accepted in the Beloved. And all of this is to the praise of the glory of His grace. He's the one that gets the credit. He's the one that did it all. And, you know, that's going to be for your good and my good. I don't know about you today. I'm going to revel in this. I'm going to rejoice in this. 
And my friend, I'm going to talk about this because it's worth talking about. And it's lots more valuable than a lot of the chit-chat that I hear today that goes under the name of religion. Oh, my friend, how we need to see the grace of God as it's revealed in Christ. Now, today we see God the Son paid for the church. And first we have here, He redeemed us through His blood. Let me read verse 7. "...in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace." Now, these verses here are actually like mountain peaks. We've just been leaping from one to the other. And I keep thinking, well, we're going to come to one where we can just touch down and then take off again. But it's not quite like that. This is so important and so vital for us today. Now, we are told here we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. This is very important for us to see. He's redeemed us through his blood. Now we move from eternity in the time. Back in eternity past, God chose, God predestinated, made us accepted in the beloved. Now we come out of eternity into time where the plans of God the Father are now placed in the hands of Christ, who moves into space and time to construct the church. And now it is a historical fact that Jesus was born into this world 1,900 years ago. God intruded into humanity. And there, after being in this earth for 33 years, he died upon a cross, buried, rose again bodily, ascended into heaven. Those are the historical facts that the Word of God give us. And while he was here, he redeemed us. And he redeemed us through his blood. Now, this is something that's not popular today. The thing that most people like is a beautiful religion, one that appeals to their aesthetic nature. The cross of Christ does not appeal to the aesthetic part of man doesn't appeal to the pride of man. And unfortunately today that, well, of course, all the liberal churches, but even a few of the so-called Bible churches today make an appeal to the old nature, to man. And therefore, there is no emphasis on the blood of Christ. It's rather repulsive. A lady went up years ago to the late Dr. G. Campbell Morgan. I'm told it was up in Philadelphia. And she was one of these dowagers that had a lorgnette. You know what a lorgnette is. It's a snare on the end of a stick. And she went up with that lorgnette and said to him, Dr. Morgan, I do not like to hear about the blood. It's repulsive to me. It offends my aesthetic nature. And Dr. Morgan looked at her in his characteristic manner, and he says, I agree with you that it's repulsive. But he says, the only thing repulsive about it is your sin and mine. That's the thing that's repulsive 
about the blood redemption and the forgiveness of sins, my friend. And then I'm told years ago that when a new pastor came to the great church in Washington, D.C., that a couple came down to him and said, we trust that you are not going to put too much emphasis on the blood. The last pastor we had, he just talked about the blood all the time. And we hope that you will not emphasize it too much. Oh, he looked at him and says, you can be assured. I won't emphasize it too much. And they said, look pleased and thanked him for it. He says, but just a minute. He says, you know, you can't emphasize it too much. And he continued to emphasize the blood. Well, it's repulsive to man. We have redemption through his blood. Now, the writer to the Hebrews puts it like this, "...in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it's written of me, to do thy will, O God, above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings, offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Now, you see, God drew the blueprint for the church. And the Son, he comes into time to form the church with nail-pierced hands. And the entire context of the Old Testament sets forth the expiation of sins by the blood of an animal sacrifice. Yet this, as the writer to the Hebrews says here, could not take away sins. Only Christ could execute that. That's what Paul means. In whom, that is, in Christ, we have our redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sin, according to the riches of his grace. Now, this is the one who's called the Beloved, accepted in the Beloved, that's Christ, and in whom we have redemption. Now, redemption is the primary work of Christ. Actually, the word is here, the redemption. In whom we have the redemption is the literal. And that gives prominence and position of the fact that it's named first. It's given top priority. That's what Christ did for us when he came to this earth. He made it that way. He said that. Matthew 20, 28, "...even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many." Now, he came to pay a price for your redemption and mine. We were slaves in sin, 
And he came to pay a price, to deliver us, to give us liberty. Now, there are three words that are found in the New Testament which are translated by the one English word, redemption. The word that is very important is the word agorazo. Now, that word agorazo, it really means to buy in the marketplace. That is the way that it is used. It means to buy in the marketplace. And the picture is this. Here goes a housewife out of a morning to the marketplace. She wants to buy some vegetables and a roast for the day. And she goes in and she sees the roast and the vegetables. She puts down cash on the barrel head and she pays the price. And now they belong to her, of course. In other words, the only thought in this word is just to buy and take out. That's the word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 6.20. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. He went in and bought us out of the slave market. That is the word. And that's all this word means. Now, there's another word that is used, and that is the Greek word ex-agorazo. Now, that means to buy it out of the market, and the thought there is to buy it for its own use. Now, you see, somebody could go into the marketplace and buy that roast and buy vegetables and go down to the next town where they're short of those items and put them up for sale for a price. But ex agorazo means to take it out of the marketplace and never to sell it again. It's not to be put up for sale anymore. And that's the thought that is in this word. And by the way, we find this word over in the third chapter of Galatians at verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Now, that means that Christ not only redeemed us, but he redeemed us that we would not be exposed for sale again. That he paid the price and he's taken us off of the market. We're never to be exposed for sale again. Well, there is a third word, and this third word is apolutrosis. Now, apolutrosis is an altogether different word, you see, and that's the word that Paul uses here. We have redemption, and it's pretty important, by the way, I think, for us to see that, that we have redemption, and we have redemption through his blood. We are told, for instance, in Luke 21, 28, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your head, for your redemption draweth nigh. Now, that's a marvelous word. It means not only to go into the marketplace, put cash on the barrel head. It means not only to take it out of the market to use for your own private use and never to sell it again, but it means now to set free, to pay a price and to set free. It means to liberate. When the ransom is paid, it means to buy out of slavery in order to set a person free. And this is the word that we have here. Now, man's been sold under sin, and he's in the bondage of sin. All you have to do is look around you today. Man is a rotten, corrupt sinner, and he can't do anything else but sin. And he's a slave to sin. 
Now, Christ came to pay the price of his freedom. And that's what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, If the Son make you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, here is something else that is quite wonderful. We're told that we have redemption through his blood. That's the price he paid. And Peter speaks of that blood. He says, For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, the blood of Christ is more valuable than silver or gold. To begin with, there's not too much of it. What is it, three gallons in a human body? Or is there that much? Well, anyway... It's a, a limited supply, and that always runs a price up, you know, the scarcity of the item. But the, the important thing is that one drop of that blood would save every sinner on top of this earth if he'd trust it. And we have redemption now through his blood. And he saves us that way because he says, "...without shedding of blood is no remission of sin." That's an Old Testament principle. And it's applicable to the entire human race from Adam down to the last man. We've been redeemed now, not with the blood of bulls and goats that can't redeem you, but the precious blood of Christ. Now, we have also, in connection with this, the forgiveness of our sins or our trespasses. Now, forgiveness, therefore, is not the act of an indulgent deity, who's moved by sentiment to the exclusion of justice and righteousness and holiness. Forgiveness depends on the shedding of blood. It depends on the payment of the penalty for sin. Now, I think right here we ought to learn to make a distinction. Human forgiveness and divine forgiveness are not the same. Actually, forgiveness means that you've just sinned it off or away. Actually, that means that you just mark out the account. Now, human forgiveness is always based on the fact that a penalty is deserved and that the penalty is forgiven. May I say to you, divine forgiveness is never that. It always means there can be no forgiveness apart from the execution of the penalty. In other words, human forgiveness comes before the penalty is executed. And divine forgiveness, the penalty has to be executed. You know, that is something that it's too bad that our entire legal system that has bogged down today and we're living in a lawless nation where it's not safe to be on the streets of our cities at night. Why? Because of the leniency on the part of certain judges throughout this land. And as a result, well, we're in a bad way. And they think that it's easy to sit on a bench and you feel big-hearted if you tell a criminal that you're free. But the penalty, my friend, has to be executed. The very interesting thing is, I heard a judge make this statement. He says, well, if God can forgive, then I can forgive. 
I want to say something. God paid the penalty. Is that judge willing to go and pay the penalty? I don't think you have any right to take men out of death row unless you're willing to take their place because a penalty must be executed. And God forgives on the basis a penalty has been executed. When was it executed? When Christ shed his blood 1,900 years ago. Sure, that's not aesthetic. That doesn't appeal to the refined nature of civilized man today. Of course it doesn't. But his sin doesn't seem to be so bad. That's sophistication. That's because he's a suave individual and clever. My friend, he's a lost, hell-doomed sinner. And God cannot forgive until the penalty has been executed. And that penalty has been executed. And that's the reason that right back to back in the Word of God in the New Testament, when you talk about forgiveness, the blood of Christ is put there. It depends on the blood of Christ whether you are going to be forgiven or not. That's how valuable the blood of Christ. I said it last time. I say it again. Come to God as a nobody and let him make you a somebody. He can forgive you your sins because he paid the penalty for your sins. And that's the only way that you and I today can have forgiveness of sins. Now, will you notice what he says over in Acts 26, 18? I'd like to read that for you. Paul is giving here his testimony, and he said that he was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that's in me, that is, in the Lord Jesus Christ. May I say to you that forgiveness depends on what Christ has done for us on the cross. Notice Luke 24, 47. And again, here the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, and that repentance and remission of sins, and remission is forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Your witnesses of these things. Now, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Paul says it again in Colossians 1:14. Now, the shedding of the blood of Christ and his death is the foundation for forgiveness, and without this, sine qua non, which means without that, nothing. Nothing. God cannot forgive you until the penalty has been paid. Thank God today the penalty has been paid. Now, Paul put it like this in Romans 4.25, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And that word offense is the word for sins here. You will have forgiveness of sins. That's the word that's used for Adam's transgression, you see here. And we are told, who was delivered for our offenses, was raised again for our justification. And so that the entire list of sins which is chargeable to man are forgiven on the basis of the blood of Christ. 
Christ bought the church foul, that he might make it fair, is the way Augustine put it. And this, by the way, is according to the riches of his grace. Now, that's an interesting expression. He doesn't say, out of the riches of his grace, but it's according to the riches of his grace. Let me illustrate the difference there. I read many years ago that when the late John D. Rockefeller played golf down in Florida, he always gave the caddy a dime. And I always felt like that almost broke the man each time to pay out that handsome sum. But you see, he didn't give according to his riches. He gave out of his riches. And I do believe he could have made it a little bit better than that. But he gave out of his riches, not according to his riches. Say, if he'd have given according to his riches, the caddy would have been rich. Well, you see, God has given according to the riches of his grace. And friends, we haven't come to that word grace yet that we're going to deal with, but God's got a lot of grace. <laughs> He's rich in it. And he is willing to give according to his riches of his grace. Oh, he has had to bestow so much on me, and he's got enough left for you. And you, and you, way up yonder at the North Pole, we're on a station up there. It must be cold up there. But God's grace is rich up there. And then way out yonder across the Pacific, some of you hear this message. God's got, oh, he is rich in grace. He has enough for you. Just come to him. We can find grace to help. God's rich in grace. He can save you and he can keep you. Now, that word redemption we looked at is such a tremendous, wonderful word. It means that he paid a price in order to save us, that we were sold under sin, slaves of sin, and he paid a price, and we have forgiveness because he paid the price. And the forgiveness of God is different than man's forgiveness. Today, man will forgive a person because of a debt that has not yet been paid but should be paid. And God's forgiveness is based on the fact that he forgives because the penalty has been paid and the price has been paid. Christ, by his blood, has purchased our redemption. And it's a glorious redemption, as we've seen. It means that he went into the marketplace where we were sold on the slave block of sin, and he purchased us. He bought us, all of us. But there's another word he uses, and that's ex agorazo, and that is he's going to use us for himself, that it's personal and established a personal relationship. And then there's another wonderful word, and that was apolutrosis. He went into the marketplace. He bought us to set us free. If the Son make you free, you will be free indeed. Now, somebody says, doesn't that sort of upset the hymn that says, I gave, I gave my life for you. What hast thou done for me? My friend, it sure does. Because the very word redemption that's used here means he never asks you that. That's the glorious thing about this word grace is when God saves you by grace, it doesn't put you in debt to him. Somebody says, but aren't you supposed to serve him? You sure are. But it's on another basis now and relationship. And you say, what's that? 
Well, the relationship now is love. The Lord Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, because I'm dying for you, you're to keep my commandments, if you love me. And today, if you love him, he wants your service. If you want to say today, I don't love him, then may I say, forget about this business of service. I hear so much about commitment to Christ today. My friend, you and I got very little to commit to him, but we're to respond in love to him. And that's on a different basis altogether. Because we love him, we love him because he first loved us. I heard this story many years ago, and it's the kind of story that you're not supposed to tell today, but I still tell them. I guess I'm still a square. But it illustrates a great truth. In my Southland, and I hate to say this, but in the days of slavery... There was a beautiful girl put on the slave block to be sold. And there was a very cruel slave owner, brutal fella, that began to bid. And every time he would bid, the girl would cringe, and a look of fear came over her face. And there was present there another man who was a plantation owner, and he owned slaves too, but he was good to his. And he saw what was happening. So he joined in the bidding. And finally, he outbid the other fella. And he purchased the girl, went up and put the price down, started to walk away, and she started after him. And he turned and said, well, what are you doing and where are you going? And she said, well, you bought me. (laughs) Oh, he said, you misunderstood. I didn't buy you because I need a slave. I don't. I don't want one. I bought you to set you free. She stood there stunned for just a moment. Then all of a sudden, she dropped her knees. Why, she said, I'll serve you forever. Well, my friend, that's the basis that Jesus wants you to serve him. If you're willing to come to him and accept him as Savior, and he loved you and he gave himself, but he had to pay a price for you. And he paid that price, his blood. And therefore, there's forgiveness of sin. Now, somebody says, brother, don't love him. Well, my friend, he's not asking you to serve him. But if you love him, he wants you to serve him, by the way. And that's what that's all about, that matter of redemption. We have forgiveness, and that's according to the riches of his grace. Now, we come to the second wonderful thing, and that is... He's revealed the mystery of his will here. And I read now verses 8 and 9 and 10. "...in which he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times..." He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. That's a wonderful passage of Scripture. That means that he's revealed also to us today the mystery of his will. Now, what is that? Well, to begin with, what does he mean when he says a mystery? Now, as I indicated last time, that when we looked at the word mystery, we'd say it's not a whodunit. This is not something that Agatha Christie wrote. This is not something that Conan Doyle wrote. 
And this is not Sherlock Holmes by any means that we're talking about. A mystery is not a whodunit. A mystery in Scripture means that God is revealing something that up to that time he has not revealed before. And not only that, I have put in my book on Ephesians this twofold meaning of it. It cannot be discovered by human agencies because it's a revelation from God, and then it's revealed at the proper time and not concealed. And enough is revealed to establish the fact without all the details being disclosed. Now, there are many mysteries in the New Testament, and I've listed those. There are 11 of them that are mentioned. And may I just intrude by saying this? Did you know that God hasn't told us everything? There are a lot of things God hasn't told us. There are many questions that I would like to ask God myself. A great many people that send in questions to us and On some of the stations, we have a question-and-answer program. We attempt to answer those questions. Well, I've got questions, too, and I don't know who to ask because nobody down here knows the answer. But someday, he'll reveal them to us. I've got quite a few things I want to ask him. Now, that is a mystery. It's something he hasn't revealed, but he now has revealed it to us. And in the New Testament why there is this wonderful mystery that was not really revealed in the Old Testament. Now, what is that mystery? Well, in which he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, this expression, in all wisdom and prudence, actually it belongs with this next verse because it seems to be just a dangling sort of a phrase a clause here. But if you put it with the other, having made known unto us the mystery of his will in all wisdom and in all prudence. Now, I think it should be given to us like that. Now, what is the mystery of his will? It's that which he's revealed according to wisdom and prudence. This is not some little ABC something. I, very frankly, today rejoice that there are so many agencies and individuals that are trying to get out what they call the simple gospel. And I thank the Lord that so many folk write and tell us that you're making the gospel simple. We can understand it. And I appreciate that because that's what we're to do. As Dr. Ironside used to say, put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kiddies can get to them. But may I say to you that there are the depths and the wisdom of God that you and I can't probe even. And therefore, we ought to bring to it all the mental acumen that we've got in order to try to understand something of the great purposes of God and the plan of God. And God wants us to know these things because now this mystery has been revealed. Now, Just what is this mystery? He says here that in the dispensation of the fullness of time. Now, that word dispensation is another wonderful word like mystery. What is a dispensation? And it's misunderstood. Now, there are a great many people today that think that's a dirty word. Well, it's not. It's a great word. 
And the Bible teaches dispensation. Maybe that's new to you, because that's something that even some of our dispensational brethren today don't say. One of the outstanding Bible teachers of years ago told me, he says, I never use the word, because it is a word that's hated. Well, there are a lot of words that are hated. Blood is one that the world doesn't like either. And redemption is another word that's not popular. And the cross, Paul says, is an offense. And I don't want to magnify an offense, but we certainly shouldn't ignore it. Now, let's not ignore this. Let me say, first of all, that the dispensation is not a period of time. That's where dispensation differs with the word age. We hear of the age of grace. Well, may I say to you, that's a period of time. Now, dispensation is an altogether different word, and it's translated several different ways. For instance, it's called a stewardship in certain places, called an order in another place, called an administration. Well, now, here it's a dispensation. Now, what is the word? Well, I'll not give the Greek word, but we have an English word that actually is a transliteration of the word, and that is the word economy. And today, economy is a way of doing things. It's an order, a system that is put in. Now, we have today, I know in school, that was what was known. They taught the girls domestic economy. Well, what is domestic economy? Well, that's the way you run the household. That's the way that you run the household. You're going to have baked beans maybe tomorrow night for dinner. And the lady of the house, she purchases a roast, and they're going to have that roast a little later on in the week, and she sets up the order, and that's the way she runs it. Now, maybe down the street there's another family. They wouldn't have that roast on Friday. They're going to have fish on Friday. That's all right. That's the way they run the house, and they've got a right to run it like that. It's the way a thing is run. Now, there's a political economy. That's another thing. They teach that in our colleges today, and there are a lot of young men that go into that field today, and unfortunately, that's where all the radicals seem to center today, in the field of political economy. Well, it's the way that you run a government, the way you run a nation. Now, over in England, they run things over there different than they do over here, and I'm not sure that either place has got the right system, but that's neither here nor there, and we certainly wouldn't better it by taking on Russia's system. And the interesting thing is that in England, they drive down the left-hand side of the street. I had a lot of fun with our guide over there, and he was a Britisher who had a real sense of humor, and I had a lot of fun with him. And he told me some very good English stories, and I shared with him a few of mine from this country. But anyway... Why, I would kid him as we'd drive along. I said, look out, there comes a car on the wrong side of the street. And you run into it. And he said, well, I'm going on the wrong side of the street. But he says, over here, it's the right side of the street. And I said, over here, the right is left. And I said, my, that's confusing to a poor American over here. But that's the way they run it, you see. That's political economy. Now, what is a dispensation? A dispensation fits into a period of time, but it's the way God runs something at a particular time. 
It's the way God does things. Now, God had Adam on a different arrangement than he has you and me. I think that the most ardent amillennialists can understand that the Garden of Eden was different than it is today in Southern California. Although there are a lot of people thought that this was the Garden of Eden, and I thought that when I first came out here, but it's got filled with smog now and traffic, and too many of us came out here. Now, that is a different situation back yonder in the Garden of Eden. God was dealing with Adam differently than he has us. Everything, I'm confident, rests upon one method of salvation. God's never had but one way to save folk. But the approach in man under that system has always been different. Abraham brought a little lamb to God, (laughs) and so did Abel. And God said that was the right way. But I hope you didn't take a lamb to church Sunday. If you want to bring a leg of lamb in, I'm sure the minister would like to have a leg of lamb. But that's not the way you approach God today, you see. We're under a different economy. Now, he says here that in the economy of the fullness of times. Now, what is the fullness of times? Now, I can't go into all phases of that. But you know that God is moving everything And this is the fullness, the pleroma, when everything is going to be brought under the rulership of Jesus Christ. And the day is coming that thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that's not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, because we're in a different dispensation today. They not like the word, but it's a good one. (laughs) And we're in a different economy today. Now, there's coming a day when every knee must bow. Every tongue must confess that Jesus is the Lord and God's moving everything in that direction. Now, that's something that hadn't been revealed in the past. Now, because of the redemption that we have in Christ and the fact there's a church today, that's the thing he's revealed to us. God is moving toward the day. Whenever knee must bow to Jesus Christ, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on earth, even in him. You see, heaven and earth are out of tune today. We're playing our own little tune. We've got rock music going down here. They don't have it up there. The only rock up there is the Lord Jesus. He's the rock, that precious stone. That is the foundation on which the church rests today. But that's a different figure of speech than we have in this chapter. Now, will you notice the third thing in verse 11? "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will." Now, he rewards us with an inheritance, and he rewards us was something we haven't done. How wonderful this is. Now, may I call your attention to this? And this is a very wonderful thing. He says here, "...in whom we have obtained an inheritance." Now, in the overall purpose and plan of God, believers have a part. They are going to inherit with Christ, and they're going to inherit with Christ because they're in Christ. And Paul says in Romans 8:17, "...and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, 
If so be that we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Now, these are some of the wonderful things. And then over in 1 Corinthians 3.21, he makes this statement here, Therefore let no man glory in man, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas or the world or life or death or things present, things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ. Christ is God. I don't know. That tremendous statement God makes, I don't grasp it all, but it causes me to be lifted from the seat in which I'm sitting and just carried right into the skies. My friend, everything's mine. Everything is mine. Christ belongs to me. Paul belongs to me. Even death may belong to me. All of it's mine. And it's because he's given it to me. It's going to be an experience. And Christ is mine and God is mine. Oh, friend, how wonderful that is. I don't know about you, I feel like shouting because this is so wonderful that he's done for us here. And he predestinated this. He determined it. You see, predestination always refers to the saved. God never predestinated anybody to be lost, but he predestinated us to get an inheritance. And if he hadn't predestinated it to me, I wouldn't get one because the reward I do not deserve. And this is God's will. And that's the only basis on which this is done. And it's good, and it's right, and it's best. Why? Because God purposed it, my friends. And you can't have it any better than that. Oh, these are the three wonderful things that Christ has done for us. He paid for the church. And I belong to him because he paid a price. How wonderful it is. I can't lose. (laughs) Oh, how wonderful this is. Now, will you notice what verse 12 says? It's one of these glorious doxologies at the end of every time that Paul tells of what one person of the Godhead did. Paul stops and sings the doxology. And then he moves to the next. And here, having told us about the work of the Son, he redeemed us through his blood. He revealed the mystery of his will, and he rewards us with an inheritance. And now in verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Now, that's a very wonderful thing. The believer is for the praise of his glory. Now, God does not exist, friends, to satisfy the whim and wish of the believer. But the believer exists for the glory of God. And when the believer is in the center of the will of God, he's living a life of fullness and of satisfaction and joy. That's the place of satisfaction and joy. And that'll deliver you from the hands of the psychologist, friends. When you move into this area today, and when you're not in that area, there's trouble brewing for you that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, that adds purpose and meaning to life, to know that your life and my life, and when you put both of them together, you and I don't have very much, do we, to offer. But we're going to be for the praise of his glory. God will be able throughout the endless ages of eternity future to point to you and me and say, look there. (laughs) You know, 
they weren't worth saving, but I loved them, and I saved them. And that's the thing that gives worth and standing and dignity and purpose and joy and glory to us. We exist today for the praise of His glory. And that is good enough. Now, this doxology, of course, looks forward to the coming of Christ. And this is the second one we've had. We'll get a third one now in a few moments. Now we come to the last. And, of course, we can only mention it. We're going to see now what the Holy Spirit does. We'll see that next time. God the Holy Spirit protects the church. God the Father planned the church. God the Son paid for the church. God the Holy Spirit protects the church. I tell you, church is very important to Him today. The little plans of man down here say they're not important. They think they are. Men are running around with a blueprint for the world. Well, they won't even be around here. In the next hundred years, this crowd will all be gone. <laughs> but God's great plan's going to be carried out. Thank God for that. Aren't you rejoicing today, friends? Wherever you are, whoever you are, however you are. Now we come to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit regenerates us. Verse 13 here. And then we're going to see the Holy Spirit seals us. And the Holy Spirit is the earnest of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. The Holy Spirit is a refuge for us. The Holy Spirit gives reality to life. We have regeneration, a refuge and reality in the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, now let's look at this. In whom ye also trusted, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, I think this section right through here is without doubt one of the most wonderful sections, in whom ye also trusted, after ye heard the word of truth. Now, what's he talking about here? Somebody says he doesn't mention regeneration. <laughs> well, he mentions regeneration here, but the way he does it is a marvelous way. Because now we are passing from God's work for us, which is objective. That was the work of God in planning the church, the work of the Lord Jesus in redeeming the church and paying for it. And now the Holy Spirit protecting, it's different. You see, God's work for us is objective. And God's work in both the Father and the Son. And it was performed by the Father and Son. But now the work of the Holy Spirit is in us. And that's subjective. Now, in this work of regeneration and renewing, the Holy Spirit causes a sinner to hear and believe in his heart. That which makes a child of God, you see. How do we become a child of God? Well, the Lord Jesus said, you must be born again. Well, how am I to be born again? To as many as received him. To them gave he the right, the exousion power, to become the sons of God, even to those that don't do any more than just believe in his name. But here it says, in whom ye also trusted after ye heard the word of truth. Now, 
Hearing means to hear not just the sound of words, but to hear with understanding. We have that over in 1 Corinthians. Paul says here that the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called, both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, who are the call? Are they the ones that just heard? No, it's more than just hearing the sound of words. It means those that heard with understanding. He called them. And it's not just a call of, of hearing words, but it's a call where the Holy Spirit made real these words. And faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And it's those that were called and heard, and they heard the Word of God and responded to it. And what did happen? Well, Peter put it like this, being born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Now, it's like this. The Word of God goes out as it's going out right now. And we're saying that the Son of God died for you. And if you trust him, you'll be saved. Well, you say, I hear what that preacher's saying, but it means nothing to me. But to somebody else hearing it, and the Spirit of God is applying it to their heart, and they are believing, they're trusting. And when they trust Christ, they're being regenerated. Oh, this is marvelous. You see, believing is the logical step after hearing not necessarily the chronological, but the logical step. You believed after you heard, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. And that's the way you're born again, friends. This is the closest to explaining what it means to be born again that I know of any place in the word of God. You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your deliverance, in whom also after ye believe. And when you say after here, I'd like to change that because, again, there's always that understanding today that these are time phrases, and they're really not time phrases or clauses at all. They are what is known in the Greek as a genitive absolute, and they're the same tense as the main verb. In other words, when you heard and you believed, then at that time you were sealed. It all took place at the same time. And that's where baptism comes in. You are baptized the moment that you trust Christ. You are sealed the moment that you trust Christ. Now, sealing is the second great work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit first opens the ear to hear. Then he implants faith. And his next logical step, you see, is to seal the believer. Now, I know today there are those that argue that there's a distinction as to whether God the Father or God the Son seals with the Holy Spirit or whether the Holy Spirit himself does the sealing. And May I say to you that that type of argument today, it wearies my tiredness. 
I get tired of hearing that type of arguing because, after all, to try to split hairs like that is like they did in the Middle Ages. They used to argue how many angels could dance on the point of a needle. You toss that around for a little while, and that'll get you nowhere to argue this. I understand it to mean that the Holy Spirit is the seal, because actually God the Father gave the Son to die on the cross. We're told that. But we're also told that God the Son offered up himself willingly. Both are true. Now, God the Father and God the Son both sent the Holy Spirit to perform a definite work. But the Holy Spirit performs the work. He regenerates the sinner, and he seals the saved, and I think he himself is the seal. Now, the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, I think, is twofold. He implants the image of God upon the heart to give reality. You know, a seal is put down on a document, and that seal has an image upon it. And I think that's exactly what he does for the believer today. I think that is the thought that we have over in John 3:33. He that receiveth his testimony hath set his seal that God is true. God puts the imprint upon him, you see. Now, the second aspect of the sealing is to denote rightful ownership. Nevertheless, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, because he makes you secure doesn't mean you can live in sin, because it means if you name the name of Christ, you're going to depart from iniquity. And if you don't, you weren't sealed, apparently, and that means you weren't regenerated. The Holy Spirit is the seal, and that guarantees that he's going to deliver us. Because Paul, a little later on in this epistle, will say we're sealed until the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. One day he'll deliver us to Christ. And it's nice to be sealed like that. You can have a letter insured today. They put a seal on it. They stamp it. And they used to seal it, but today they stamp it. And when that stamp's on there, the post office said, we're going to deliver it. However, they don't always deliver mail. I'm not going to get off on that again. I have too many mail carriers and people working post office who listen to me, and they're good people. And they think I condemn all folk because... Sometimes letters don't get through, but very frankly, that seal guarantees the deliverance of the letter. And all of this is for what purpose? Verse 14, the third work of the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, earnest money is money that if you want to buy a piece of property and you want them to hold it for you, you put so much money down. That means more's to follow. Now, the Holy Spirit is the earnest money. God's given to us the Holy Spirit, and that means he's got more things he's going to give us later on. We've already seen we have an inheritance. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. And earnest money means more is to follow. And all of this is to the praise of his glory. And here's now a third doxology that we've had here And the interesting thing is, when Paul considers the work of the triune God for us, why he has a great doxology to offer, a praise to God. 
Now we have the prayer of Paul. Because you see that what happens here is that not only does the Holy Spirit regenerate us, not only is the Holy Spirit our refuge, but the Holy Spirit gives reality. Now Paul is led to prayer. And so on behalf of the Ephesians, he prays. And you'll notice what he prays for. And it's very important that we remember this in prayer. He says, verse 15, and this is the prayer of Paul, "...wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers." Now, will you notice this? Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith and love to the saints. Now, this church was noted for its faith and for its love. Love one for another. Love wasn't a motto. It wasn't a bumper sticker in the Ephesian church. It was real. The believers loved each other. And that was the church at its very highest, the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, represents the church at its very best. That's the early church. And this is the Ephesian church. And they were noted for their faith in the Lord Jesus and for their love unto all the saints. I tell you, this was a great church. And when Paul heard that, he says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And you notice his prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving. Now, today, the thing that motivates us in prayer for others is trouble, sickness, distress, a crisis. That causes us to pray. Now, I recently was asked to pray for a church that I love a great deal because of the things that are taking place inside of the church no love for the brethren, nothing but gossip, and Bible study no longer the top priority. And some were distressed, and they said, Dr. McGee, pray for this church. Well, I pray for it. That motivates me to pray. Now, Paul, the thing that motivated him was this type of thing also, but also something good caused him to pray. When you hear something good about some child of God, how God is blessing some preacher, some servant of God, do you get out and say, Oh, God, I thank you for this brother and the way you're using him. And when you hear about a wonderful Bible church and the word going out, do you get down and thank God for it? Friends, we turn in too many grocery lists to the Lord. We say, we want this, we want that, we want the other thing. And Lord, will you do this and will you do that? God's no messenger, boy. Why don't you thank him sometime? Have a thanksgiving service. A preacher friend of mine told me that their prayer meeting got so stale and dull and so small that they tried something new. And they decided one midweek service in the prayer meeting that do nothing but praise God and thank him. He said, we sure had some brief prayers, but we had a good prayer meeting that night. Nobody asked God for anything, just thanked him what he'd done. I think he'd appreciate all of us having thanksgiving regularly, not wait once a year, but have it more often than that. And Paul says, when he heard the good news and this wonderful thing about the Ephesian church, he says, I just cease not to give thanks for you. 
I just went to God and said, Lord, thank you for the Ephesians. Have you ever been to God and say, Lord, I thank you for so-and-so. He's meant so much to me. Thank you for him. <laughs> My friend, we ought to do a great deal of that and make mention Paul says, I make mention of you in my prayers. Now, what's he going to pray for? Paul made requests, too, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Did you notice Paul didn't pray that they get more money, that the debt be paid off? However, I think he would pray for that. There's nothing wrong with that. But he prayed here for something that I don't know whether we pray for, for wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Do we pray for that today? There are people that have prayed for my health, my physical health, and I thank God for them, a, oh, a thousand times. It's wonderful. But I hope sometimes you'll pray, give that fellow McGee a little bit more understanding of the word, God. He seems to be so ignorant of your word. I wish you'd pray that prayer sometime. I'd appreciate it very, very much. Now, good news caused Paul to pray. And by the way, we never think really of Paul as being an outstanding example of a man of prayer, do we? Well, when we think of a great missionary of the cross, well, we'd certainly put Paul at the top of the list. And when we want an example of a great apostle... We couldn't find any greater than Paul. And when you want one of the great preachers of the church, in fact, you couldn't get a list of ten of the greatest preachers of the church without putting Paul as number one. And he was one of the greatest teachers. The Lord Jesus was the greatest. And it said, never man taught as this man taught. Well, Paul certainly followed in that tradition and he's an example of a good pastor, by the way, as we see him in Ephesus, according to Dr. Luke, weeping with the believers there and how they loved him. I always judge a church by the way that they love their pastor, and especially their ex-pastor. That tells you something about the folk, especially if he stood for the Word of God. And today we need to learn to judge folk by their attitude, really, toward the Word of God, not how big the Bible is that they put under their arm. Now, when you think of anyone excelling in any field of service in the early church, Paul the Apostle must be up toward the top. But how about a representative of a great man in prayer? Would you put Paul in that list? Well, Moses the great intercessor on top of the mountain was a great man of prayer. We think of him as that. And certainly David, who went before God in dire circumstance because of his awful sin, and he made confession. And Elijah, as he stood alone before a rebuilt altar, drenched with water on a mountaintop. And then there was Daniel, who reveals a man of prayers. He opened his window toward Jerusalem before a hostile power. And the Lord Jesus certainly is a marvelous example to us of prayer, so much so that the apostles came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. But you know, Paul was a great man of prayer. When I was teaching Bible in the Institute, 
here in Southern California in downtown Los Angeles, I always had the students, when we got to the epistles of Paul, to make a list of the prayer list of the Apostle Paul. Every time he said he was praying for somebody to put it down. And lo and behold, I've had student after student come up and said, My, I didn't know Paul had such a prayer list. Didn't know he prayed for so many people. Well, he was a great man of prayer. And here now we have the example. In fact, there are two prayers of Paul that are here. And we have the one now, having set before us the church as the body of Christ. It just caused him to drop to his knees and begin to pray. And then we're going to find again that when we get to the end of chapter 3, another great prayer of the Apostle Paul. Two right here in the epistle to the Ephesians. Now, that's a mark, by the way, of a child of God. You know, one of the ways you can tell whether a man is a child of God or not is because of his prayer life. How much does he feel a dependence upon God? And if he feels that dependence upon God, he's going to God in prayer for himself. And he'll also go to God in prayer as intercession for others. Well, that to me is a pretty good indication. You remember that when Ananias, yonder in the city of Damascus, he was disturbed when the angel wanted him to go over to Saul of Tarsus. And he put up an objection. He said, well, that man persecuted the church. And now the angel says, behold, he prayeth. And that was a pretty good indication that something had happened to the apostle Paul. He says, I cease not to give thanks for you. The Ephesians were on his prayer list, and I guess all these churches were making mention of you in my prayers. And that means he called them by name. I was with a great preacher one day, and some folk came up and spoke to us and shook hands. And one of the men that came up said to this preacher, said, I'm praying for you. And this preacher, I never shall forget, he said to him, well, thank you very much, but do you mention me by name? (laughs) He says, because I wouldn't want the Lord to get me mixed up with somebody else. Well, call them by name, friends, when you pray for them to the Lord. And somebody says, well, he already knows. Well, just make sure that the Lord knows. Pray for folk by name. He says, I make mention of you in my prayers. That means he called the names. Now, in this great prayer here, I considered a threefold prayer, some a twofold prayer, but that's beside the point because the important thing is here that he says, first of all, that the God, this is verse 17 now, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, the thing that I'd call attention to here is that this man not only had a motive in prayer, which was good news, but he's not praying for material things, but he's praying here for spiritual blessings. And these spiritual blessings are very important. And the fact of the matter is, they're all important. Now, Paul, having revealed here that the church is the body of Christ, 
and that God the Father planned it, God the Son paid for it, God the Holy Spirit protects it. He recognized that these folk here wouldn't be able to understand that unless the Spirit of God was there to be the teacher and there to open up the Word of God. And only the Spirit of God can do that. Dr. Ironside tells the story of when he apparently lived here in Southern California as a young man, and he wanted to go out and to preach the Word, and he was doing that. And so there was a wonderful man of God that had come over from North Ireland to Southern California because of what they would call in that day galloping consumption. But he came out to this area apparently too late, and you wouldn't want to come today with all the smog, but nevertheless, in that day, it was different. And he stayed in a little tent out back of the home of Dr. Ironside's parents. And this man was a great man of God, and one who had been used of God in teaching the Word. And Dr. Ironside went out and would sit with him, and he would open up the Scripture in such a way that Dr. Ironside said he'd never heard of anything like that before. So one day he asked him, he said, where did you learn that? This man said, well, I didn't get them by going to seminary because I never went to seminary. And I never got them by going to college. And I never got them by actually being taught by someone. But he says, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. There with my open Bible before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and open the Word to my heart. And he taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I ever could have learned in all the seminaries or colleges in the world. And I happen to know, having known Dr. Ironside, that he practiced that in his ministry. I remember when he was teaching us the Song of Solomon, he said he never was satisfied with what he found in the commentaries, and he just got down on his knees and asked God to reveal to him the message of that book. And he has a book on it, and I will present the Song of Solomon when we get to it, And I'm going to give you, very frankly, his interpretation of it, because it's the only one that's ever satisfied my own heart. And what a wonderful, glorious thing it is to have the Spirit of God to be the one to be our teacher, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And how will that take place? Well, it'll take place by the Spirit of God being our teacher. And, oh, that you and I might learn that, that the Spirit of God is the only one that can open our eyes. Notice verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, and you'll notice here that this is quite remarkable, the eyes of your heart 
not the eyes of your mind, that your heart might understand. You see that you may be very brilliant intellectually, but that does not guarantee that you can understand spiritual truth. Because eye hath not seen, neither ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. And only the Spirit of God can teach them to you. Now, I have no understanding of music whatsoever. I can't sing. I can't carry a tune. I recognize very few tunes. I do not know what a pitch is. That's a foreign field to me. Now, I ask a musician. In fact, I had a music director one time, and he made the statement publicly. He says, I can teach anybody to sing. I stood up immediately, and I said, Brother, you've got a pupil. Nobody's ever been able to teach me to sing. So, all right, the congregation laughed, and we made an engagement. And every Thursday afternoon, I met with him for a month. At the end of the month, he gave up. He said, you know, I just really believe you're right. You'd never be able to learn music. I said, that's true. I said, how could I ever learn He said, the only way in the world would be for you to be born again. (laughs) What he meant was, I'd have to be born another person. Now, my friend, as far as spiritual knowledge is concerned, no person can understand it. I have not seen, ear, heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. And it's only as you and I are willing for the Spirit of God to teach it. I've told many times about that dear little lady up there in Sherman, Texas, that when I went up to preach there, why, they asked me to speak to her. Everybody called her Grandma. She's way up in years, couldn't read nor write. And I started out by trying to explain to her John 14. I thought I'd take something simple for Grandma. After all, she couldn't read or write. She wasn't smart like I was. I was a first-year seminary student, and I had answered everything at that time, and she listened to me for about five minutes. Then she said to me, young man, did you ever notice that? Well, I hadn't noticed it, I'll be honest with you, and I couldn't understand how she noticed it. She couldn't read nor write. She knew things about John 14 I've never read in any commentary, and no Bible teacher ever taught those to me. Do you know how she did? The eyes of her understanding were opened by the Spirit of God. Oh, my friend, the Spirit of God wants to teach us. And one of the reasons that God's people are not in the Word of God today is because they're not willing for the Spirit of God to teach them. They have to listen to a poor preacher like me, or they have to go to some home Bible class. Why don't you let the Spirit of God teach you, Christian friend? When you read a passage of Scripture and you say, I don't understand that. I read that. I have people say that. I read that many times, and I never saw that in it. Well, when you didn't get anything out of it, you get to a barren place in Scripture, and I get there many times, even today. Just get down on your knees, sir. Just turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I missed the point, and you'll have to teach me, and he'll teach you. Then that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, it's not our inheritance here in him but it's his inheritance in us. Now, I think the illustration would be the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan belonged to God, and he gave the children of Israel possession of it. 
Now, by and by, he's going to take possession of this universe that you and I live in, and through his saints, we're going to reign with him. <laughs> and I've just wondered about that. In fact, that's an area I've just never been able to penetrate. And again, the Spirit of God needs to make this real to us. He has an inheritance in us today. And we're tied in, as the children of Israel, we're tied in with that land. We're going to rule someday. Notice there is another petition here. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? And believe me, this is power that he's talking about here. And friends, I mean power. Let me just take a moment for that and look at this power that we're talking about here. It is power that, first of all, notice, and I'll give you my translation of it. What is the exceeding, the intense greatness of his power? And this is dunamis power, dynamite power, to usward who believe according to the working, and that working is energizing of the strength of his might, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him up. That is, in the act of raising him from the dead. Now, friends, that's power, to raise Christ from the dead. Not only that, but the power that set him on his right hand. That's ascension power. And we don't make much of the ascension in our churches today. That is, most of us that belong to Bible churches. For some reason, we emphasize Christmas and Easter, but we seem to forget everything after that. Have you ever stopped to think of the power that took him back to the right hand of God? That, my friend, is power. We're beginning to see a little of it. Have you ever stopped to think of the power that it takes to lift a missile off of the base down yonder in Florida and take it out yonder into space? Think of the power, the physical power that it took to take men to the moon and bring them back. That is power. Why, my friend, if it took that kind of power to travel horizontally on this earth today, you'd see a Volkswagen coming down the highway with one of these great big gas trucks back of it. It would take that much power to keep it going. But it was that power that took him back. And that they might not only know that power, Paul says that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, but that I might have it working in me. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that's named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, and he's going to put all things under his feet and gave him now to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And Paul concludes on this tremendous high note here that the church is the body of Christ and he is the head of the church. And someday everything is going to be under him. And at the present time, the only thing that is under him is the church. And I believe that is the true church. Now, there's many organized groups down here today that are not listening to the Lord Jesus. I can tell you that. And it's a paralyzed church. 
You see, the most tragic thing in the world is to see some dear, especially child of God, lying on a bed helpless because the brain has been detached from the body. Well, I've been in many churches that are like that, haven't you? Where actually the church is detached. And there are many individual Christians today that are detached from the head. My friend, he is the head of the body. And he says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. In other words, I wiggle this little finger of mine, which I'm doing right now here by myself in the studio. I'm wiggling it. You know why? Because the head up here has got charge of that. And I tell you, when he wants you to wiggle down here, you're going to wiggle or else you're not attached to him. Oh, how important this is in these days in which we live. For as the body is one, hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many, one body so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, then all made to drink into one Spirit. And he is the head of the body. 